Oh, did you want me to? You go ahead and start. Y'all know her. Okay. Just Karen. Just add it. Thank you guys for coming. Always good to be in the, the great border state of Kentucky. Um, I realized, I remembered as I was getting ready for this trip that uh, one of my characters that I'm going to be talking about tonight uh, ends up in Kentucky during the end of her, her uh, Civil War career. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that she shoots somebody in the face, <laughs> which makes for an interesting scene. But if you read the book, you'll get to that. Uh, but anyway, I usually start off with, um, can you all see, am I standing right in front of this thing? Can you see the slides? Yeah, actually, your shadows. Yeah, should I? Better. Is this better? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if, I, if I fall on my face, it's part of the act. Um, I usually start off by talking about how I got into this, into this subject. I was born and raised in Philadelphia, um, but about in 2001, I moved to Atlanta, where I lived for six years, and it was quite a culture shock, uh, as you can probably imagine. Um, I had to get used to seeing uh, Confederate flags on the lawns and hear the jokes about the, uh, the War of Northern Aggression um, and just realize that, that uh, the Civil War seeped into daily life and conversation down south in a way it never does up north. Um, and this point was really driven home for me one day when I was stuck in traffic on Route 400. Um, if anybody's been to Atlanta, you know Route 400 is like the Dante's seventh circle of hell. It's, it's, and I was stuck on Route 400 for uh, about two hours behind a pickup truck with a bumper sticker that read, oh, what happened? Oh, I shut it off. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't blame me. I voted for Jeff Davis. Um, Jeff Davis, of course, was the president of the Confederacy. Uh, and so I was stuck looking at this bumper sticker for two hours and therefore had quite a bit of time to really start thinking about the Civil War in more detail. And my mind always goes to, you know, what were the women doing? And not just any women, what were the, the bad women doing? What were the defiant women doing? And um, I started doing a little bit of research about this. And now some women did things that you would expect. Uh, they knitted socks or held bazaars to raise money for supplies. Um, some women have been a little bit further than that, and they became informal recruiting officers who would shirk, uh, shame any man who shirked his duty to fight. Um, and there were some really hilarious cartoons about these women. Here's one of them. Uh, here's a woman dressed up in her military garb, looming over her cowering fiance, saying, um, either you enlist or I enlist. So shaming the men. Um, and I came across one story that talked about a Southern girl who heard that her fiance did not want to enlist with the Confederate Army. And she sent over a package, her, she sent her server over to him with a package and a note. The package contained a big crinoline and the note said, wear this skirt or volunteer. <laughs> Um, so he ended up volunteering too. The men did not like to be ashamed by their women. Um, but I wanted to find women who went even further than that. I wanted to find uh, women who lied, seduced, wheedled, plundered, spied, drank, avenged, stole, and murdered their way through the war. Um, and going through my research, I think I found four women who did exactly that. Uh, two for the North and two for the South. And my goal with this book was try to create a tapestry of their stories. They all had interesting connections. Um, as we'll talk about later, um, they, they were in the several places at the same time, they met the same people, and their stories sort of weave the tapestry, and I was trying to tell the story of the Civil War in a way it really hadn't been done before through these eyes of these women. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce some of my favorite characters and incidents from the Civil War, and my first one is this woman right here. I can't, her face is cut off a little bit, but, but trust me, she'll, she'll make herself known. Um, this is Belle Boyd. 
Uh, she was a 17-year-old girl living in the Shenandoah Valley in, um, in Virginia when the war broke out. It's West Virginia today, um, but it was still um, Virginia at that time. And Belle, I loved Belle because she had no filter, not even for herself. She was completely id, all id all the time. Um, just to give you a taste of Belle's personality, here's an excerpt from a letter that she wrote to her cousin shortly before the war broke out and when she's enlisting him to help her find a husband. All right, so this is Belle. I am tall, she wrote. I weigh 106 and a half pounds. My form is beautiful. My eyes are of a dark blue and so expressive. My hair is of a rich brown and I think I tie it up nicely. My neck and arms are beautiful and my foot is perfect. I only wear size two and a half shoes. My teeth the same curly whiteness, I think perhaps a little whiter. Nose quite as large as ever, neither Grecian nor Roman, but beautifully shaped. And indeed, I am decidedly the most beautiful of all of your cousins. <laughs> um, so Belle clearly had a, a huge self-esteem problem. Um, but anyway, she kicks things off in July of 1861, um, shortly after the Civil War broke out. And she's in her hometown of Martinsburg, Virginia. And the, as the story goes, uh, Union soldiers had won a small skirmish nearby, and they were marching up the valley to Martinsburg for a 4th of July victory parade. So once they arrived in Martinsburg, um, they began doing what victorious Union soldiers did and breaking into homes and stealing liquor and robbing stores, basically terrorizing any of the residents who had stayed behind. Um, and Belle was one of these people who had stayed behind with her family in her home, and she was waiting for these uh, soldiers to come to her doorstep. And she was waiting with a pistol by her side. Um, and so sure enough, when the Union soldiers came to Belle's doorstep, um, one of them threatened to raise a Union flag over her home. And Belle, being the cool, common, collected sort that she was, uh, shot the soldier dead. So she shot the soldier dead and she got away with it. And she was very emboldened by the fact that she got away with it. And she decided that the Confederate Army needed her. They needed her services. There was no way the Confederate Army had a chance unless Belle Boyd was there to enlist and, and fight and serve alongside them and spy and do whatever she could do. And she had many family friends and, um, and relatives already enlisted in the, in the Confederate Army. So she used these connections to secure herself a, a sort of low-level entry position as a spy and courier. Um, and Belle took herself very, very seriously Here's Belle taking herself very seriously in her Confederate garb. Um, and one of the things she did immediately, you know, she figured that she could be of great service to the Confederate Army by spying and, and seducing soldiers to get information. Now, Belle did not discriminate. She seduced Union men, Confederate men, anyone who would talk to her. Um, she, uh, this is why I love uh, nonfiction. You can't make this stuff up. One of Bell's reported paramours was a Union man by the name of Major Dick Long. <laughs> I always feel like a 12-year-old boy telling that story, but um, you know, I found that in a, in a newspaper archive and was like, I, can't, I cannot believe this actually happened. Um, she, uh, one uh, northern journalist reported that she was, quote, closeted for four hours with Union General James Shields, and she celebrated this conquest by wrapping a Confederate flag around his head. Um, she was very overt with both her opinions and her sexuality. Uh, I'd like to say she was sort of a 19th century amalgamation of um, God, Sarah Palin and, and Kim Kardashian, somewhere along that spectrum. Um, although probably much smarter than either of them. 
Um, and Bell uh, developed a few nicknames over the course of the war. Uh, one of them, you know, I should say that, that men loved Belle Boyd. They flocked to her. They found her fascinating. They thought she had a great figure. They, they always couldn't believe what brazen thing she did next. Women, not so much. Women did not like Belle. They had several nicknames for her, um, the most prominent of which was, quote, the fastest girl in Virginia, or anywhere else for that matter. <laughs> um, and there would be many more adventures that Belle had in the Civil War, and we'll get to a few of those. This is my second spy. This is Private Frank Thompson with the Union Army. And Private Frank Thompson came into the war with a bit of a secret. Uh, Private Frank Thompson was actually a woman named Emma Edmonds, who had been living as a man for two years. Now, Emma Edmonds had had a very difficult childhood. Uh, she was born and raised in Canada, and she had a very strict father who was a farmer and who always lamented the fact that he did not have sons to help him with his uh, farming business. Instead, he had a bunch of daughters, you know, who needs girls? <laughs> so he, he started arranging their marriages all to neighboring farmers just to get rid of them, and these girls settled into their dull, drab lives. And Emma watched this happen, and she knew that her father had a similar plan for her. He had already picked out the farmer she was to marry. Her whole life was planned out for her. And Emma didn't want this. You know, she was an adventurous sort. She was a daring sort. And she realized that the only way she could um, escape being married to a man and beholden to a man was to become a man herself. Um, so when she was 17 years old, she cut off her hair. She bound her breasts. Uh, she traded in her dress for a man's suit. And she began calling herself Frank Thompson. Uh, she went away from home. And she became an itinerant Bible salesman. Uh, she migrated down from Canada and came into the United States and was selling Bibles door to door. Um, and she was doing quite well with this. But she was hearing about the drumbeat of events leading up to the Civil War. The abolitionist John Brown was in the news. And Emma decided she wanted a piece of that. She was also a devout Christian and believed that the Bible dictated that slavery was against God's law. And she, she sort of had a moral calling to, to help in that regard as well. Um, and she found herself near Detroit, Michigan in the spring of 1861, and she decided to enlist. There was a recruitment center, and she signed herself up. Now, you might ask, how would Emma Edmonds have fooled the doctor, or the surgeon, who was examining all the potential recruits? Now, I did a lot of uh, research into this topic because it was endlessly fascinating to me. And it turns out there were about 400 women of both North and South uh, combined who disguised themselves as men and either enlisted for the Union or the Confederate armies. And I wanted to know how these women got away with it. Um, and I came to the conclusion, there were several reasons, um, but the, the most prevalent to me at least, was that nobody had any idea what a woman would look like wearing pants. If you think, it's simple when you think about it, but, but people were so used to seeing women's bodies pushed and pulled in these exaggerated shapes with corsets and crinoline, that um, the very idea of a woman wearing pants, let alone an entire army uniform, was so unfathomable that you couldn't even see it, even if it were directly in front of your face. It did not compute. So of course these women used that to their great advantage. Um, and Emma, at, in Detroit, she passed the physical exam handily. Um, doctors at that time, the rules said that you had to conduct a thorough physical examination, but they had to flout these rules, generally speaking. Um, there were codes to fill, they had to get bodies out there quickly, there was a mad rush just to get people on the field and get people into the armies and start training. So they really only cared if you had uh, fingers to pull a trigger, if you had enough teeth to rip off a powder cartridge, and if you had the feet to, to march. That was pretty much it. Uh, so Emma pretty much handily passed that exam, um, and she, she also uh, lived with her fellow recruits who, who 
uh, had a few jokes with her. They called her our woman on occasion only because she had some very small feet. She had to bring her own boots because she didn't fit into the regulation army boots. But things were going along pretty smoothly for her, despite the fact that every day Emma spent in the army, she was at risk. Um, she was at risk not only with uh, Confederate bullets, she was on the front lines a lot, she worked as a courier, she worked as a nurse, um, she was constantly racing in and out of the battlefield. Um, but she knew that if she were discovered, uh, her sex were discovered, uh, she could be arrested, she could be charged with prostitution, and most devastating to Emma, she most likely would have been kicked out of the army, um, which for her would have been a fate, you know, worse than death. She really was dedicated to the army. But things were going along pretty smoothly with her, and um, except for a very unexpected development. She happened to fall in love with a fellow soldier from uh, the second Michigan, and, um, and uh, who also was a devout Christian, uh, this rather dashing gentleman by the name of Jerome Robbins. Um, and Jerome, uh, they spent a lot of time together because he too was a nurse, and they bonded over that, and they bonded over religion. And one of the great joys of researching this book was finding Jerome Robbins' diary uh, at the Bentley Library at the University of Michigan. Um, and it's full of references to his friend, Frank Thompson. And he, he wrote things like, there's something funny about my friend, Frank Thompson. I can't quite put my finger on it, uh, but a mystery seems to be connected to him, and I just don't know what it is. So, of course, this curiosity just only grows the more time they spend together. And at some point, Emma's going to have to make a decision. Um, does she keep her, her secret to herself and, and sort of suffer in silence and let this chance for romance pass her by? Or does she tell Jerome who and what she really is and, and let the chips fall where they may? Um, so following their uh, romance was one of the, one of the fun threads of, of this book. This is my third spy. This is a Confederate spy, Rose O'Neill Greenhouse, um, pictured here with her eight-year-old daughter, Little Rose. Now, Rose also had a really interesting background. She was sort of the grand dame of deep Washington, D.C. society before the war broke out, and an ardent Confederate sympathizer living in Washington, D.C., which was very Southern in culture during the war, even though it was the, the capital of the, uh, the federal capital. And her whole life had fallen apart in the years leading up to the war. She had lost five children in four years, if you can imagine that. Uh, she had lost her husband in a freak accident, and she had lost her access to the White House. Uh, this is somebody who had been friends with high-ranking Democratic politicians for years leading up to the war. She was even a very close advisor and confidant to former President James Buchanan. Um, so when Lincoln and the Republicans came into power, she lost all of this. She lost this power, she lost that connection, and she was really desperate to regain um, parts of her old life back. So in the spring of 1861, when a Confederate general came to Rose Greenhow and asked her to organize and, and uh, operate an espionage ring, uh, for the rebels in the Washington, uh, D.C. Capitol, she jumped at the chance. And she, too, began cultivating sources, and again, by cultivating, I mean seducing. One of Rose's most important sources was this gentleman by the name of uh, Senator Henry Wilson. He was a, a Republican of Massachusetts, and he was not only an abolitionist, but he also served as the Lincoln's chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs. Um, here's a little excerpt of a letter he wrote to Rose. Um, you know that I do love you, he wrote. I am suffering this morning. In fact, I am sick physically and mentally and know nothing that would soothe me so much as an hour with you. Um, so you can imagine they had some very lucrative pillow talk uh, that Rose used to her great advantage as, as the war went on. Now this is fascinating. I found this in the National Archives. Do I have a pointer, a pointer thingy here? I don't know. But um, this is Rose's cipher. 
that was given to her by the Confederate captain who recruited her to run the spy ring. Um, if anybody's familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Gold Bug, it's sort of similar to the cipher used in that, these little mysterious looking symbols concealing different letters, numbers, and words. Um, if you look down sort of to the third row from the bottom on the left, you see Lincoln. Um, her, her symbol for Lincoln is this sort of inverted triangle bisected by a slash. Uh, and Rose had two nicknames for Lincoln. Uh, one was Beanpole, which a lot of people call him Beanpole, and the other was Satan. <laughs> uh, just to give you an idea of the animosity she had for Lincoln, she, she mostly preferred to call him Satan. Um, so Rose took this cipher very seriously. She memorized it, she practiced the symbols, trying to learn how to write them as quickly as she could. So in case she had to send off a dispatch quickly with some important vital information, she could, she could do that without worrying about it immediately being deciphered by the Union Army. Now, if she did not have time um, to do her cipher, or for any reason she couldn't do it at that, when, when she needed to convey some information, her scouts, she called them her scouts, um, she devised other ways to communicate with these sources. At an appointed hour, they might be looking up at her windows. She lived in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., and they would see that she was raising and lowering her blinds according to the dots and dashes of the Morse code. Um, and if she was on the street, she could achieve the very same effect by fluttering her fan in precise, a precise manner according to the dots and dashes of the Morse code. So people learned to look for Rose's little tricks, and she was very ingenious at, at really um, getting across whatever she had to say in the most um, um, efficient way possible. This is another find from the National Archives. Um, this is, uh, and just to give you a little background and context for this, can you all see this? Okay. Um, you know, the Lincoln in the North thought the war was going to be over in 90 days. Uh, their idea was that they would meet the Confederates um, at the Battle of Bull Run in Manassas. Uh, they would easily defeat the Confederates at the Battle of Bull Run. They would go on to Richmond, capture the Confederate capital of Richmond, done. Easy peasy, the war would be over in about three months. Well, of course, Rose Greenhow and the Confederates had different plans. And in the days, lead weeks leading up to the first Battle of Bull Run in July of 1861, Rose, um, with all of her sources, all the information she garnered from her sources, decided to call over a courier to her home. The courier was a 16-year-old girl named Betty Duvall. So Betty Duvall comes into Rose's home. Rose sits her down in a vanity in her bedroom and begins wrapping up a enciphered note into the scrap of black silk and coiling it up into Betty's hair. And she gives Betty very careful instructions. She says, you are to go over to General Beauregard's headquarters um, you're going to pass over the, the bridge. You're going to wave to the Union sentries. They're not going to think that you're anything but a simple country girl coming home from the market. They're going to let you by. They're not going to search you. You just go right on the General Beauregard's headquarters, undo your hair, and give him this note. And the note had, had some information about Union troop numbers and positions that confirmed information that the Confederates already suspected and helped them plan what their strategy was going to be at the first battle of Bull Run. So on the appointed day, Betty Duvall did exactly what Rose said. She went over the bridge, she waved to the Union sentries, they waved back, uh, happily let her go on, watching the pretty girl go by. Uh, she shows up at General Beauregard's headquarters, undoes her hair in dramatic fashion, and produces the note. Um, and of course, everybody knows what happens after that. The Confederates beat the Union so severely at the First Battle of Bull Run um, that everybody's preconceived notions about the war are upended, it's very clear pretty immediately that it's going to be a much longer fight than 90 days and that the Confederates are not going to go down without a long and bloody fight. So this is actually one of my favorite pictures. It was not taken during the Civil War, 
but it, it illustrates um, how legendary the first Battle of Bull Run became in the minds of Americans after it occurred um, and how steeped it was in American consciousness. Uh, this is actually taken in the 1890s. If anybody's familiar with uh, historical fashion, you can see it's, it's not Confederate uh, or Civil War era garb, the hats and the, and the dresses. Um, so this is taken in the 1890s, and these people were actually reenacting something that happened at the First Battle of Bull Run. Um, on that day, in July of 1861, people thought it would be a good idea to pack up the kids, get a picnic basket, take the carriage over. All these residents of Washington, D.C. and the surrounding suburbs just showed up at the battlefield and spread out their picnic and, you know, the children playing, and everybody was just going to watch the Union win and toast to the Union when they won. It's going to be a lovely day. Well, they soon learned pretty quickly that that was a very terrible idea as uh, people were getting badgered and knifed and bayoneted and shot all around them. Um, they scrambled to get the hell out of there as quickly as they could. Several people drowned in Bull, Cru Bull Run Creek on the way out. You know, the parasols were flying, the champagne bottles were broken. Uh, many other people were captured by Confederates and taken to jail in Richmond. Um, so it ended up being a, a, a quite a different day than the one they had envisioned. Um, but I just love the fact that 30 years later, um, these people are recreating the picnics at the first battle of Bull Run um, and uh, remembering the Civil War, I guess, in their own little sort of macabre way. Now, this is my fourth spy. This is Elizabeth Van Lu, um, and she was a Union spy living in the Confederate capital of Richmond. And she also uh, had a very interesting background. Um, well, first, she was, she was pretty much the, the exact opposite of Rose Greenhow. Um, whereas Rose was bold and brazen and really spoke her mind, uh, Elizabeth was quiet and cautious and discreetly cunning. And whereas Rose was this great beauty, you know, everybody celebrated Rose's beauty and spoke about, about what a, a knockout she was, a heartbreaker. Uh, Elizabeth, according to one of her neighbors, was, quote, never as pretty as her portrait showed. Rare. No. Um, <laughs> for Elizabeth. Um, but she did have, she was a brilliant woman. She had a very interesting background. Uh, she was a Richmond native, born in Richmond, um, raised in Richmond for most of her life, but sent to Philadelphia for a time for some schooling. And while she was in Philadelphia, she was under the care of an abolitionist governess. And she internalized those ideals when she was in Philadelphia. And when she returned to Richmond, she was appalled by the institution of slavery. Um, she wanted to do everything she could to eradicate it. When her father died, she spent her vast inheritance um, buying slaves for the express purpose of freeing them. She freed all the family slaves against her father's will. Um, and she was sort of devoted to this and, and became known as an outspoken abolitionist. Um, and it was very dangerous for somebody to be known to have Elizabeth's views during this time period. Um, people were very suspicious of her. Detectives started following her wherever she went. She received death threats. Nevertheless, she went through with her idea to build um, and operate a union spy ring in the Confederate capital of Richmond. And she began recruiting people from all walks of life in order to do this. Uh, one of them was her own brother. This is John Van Lu, um, with some serious facial hair going on there. Uh, John Van Lu operated the family's drugstore. They had a very prominent drugstore, served all the important clients throughout Virginia, um, and it was a very successful enterprise. And he decided to use their family drugstore as a front for his spy activity. So he very ingeniously would take business paperwork, blank business paperwork, and fill it out with specific numbers. Um, and every number he wrote down, it might just look like a, a regular inventory, but every number corresponded to certain military terminology. Um, for example, 370 iron hinges might mean 3,700 cavalry. 
30 anvils might mean 30 batteries of artillery, and, and so on. So if he had this paperwork filled out and he was examined by the Confederate sentries, they would just think it was ordinary business paperwork and pass him on through. So it was, it was pretty smart on his end. But I think that Elizabeth's greatest uh, coup as a spy master was placing a former family slave in the Confederate White House as a spy. Now to tell you that story, uh, this is Verena Davis, the first lady of the Confederacy, wife of Jefferson Davis. And she, uh, in, the, in late in 1861, you know, had moved into the White House and was busy setting up her staff and, and preparing her home and get everything ready. And she put out a call that she needed servants. All the society ladies in Richmond were to recommend servants if they had women to, to recommend, or men for that matter. Um, and Elizabeth got an idea. She had a family uh, servant named Mary Jane Bowser. Mary Jane Bowser was born a slave in the Van Lee family, and she was freed when she was about four years old. Um, and Elizabeth had a very close bond with Mary Jane. She always saw something special in her. Um, she treated her more like a, a daughter, I think, than a, a servant, and, and um, I actually sent her away to school, um, taught her to read, which was illegal, by the way, to do um, during this time period. And so Elizabeth decided to pay a visit uh, to Verena Davis. And she goes over there one afternoon for tea and says, Verena, I have a girl for you. Uh, she's not very bright. She stumbles in the kitchen. But she's loyal and she'll serve your family well. Verena says, send her on over. Um, so Elizabeth sends over Mary Jane Bowser. Now Mary Jane Bowser, um, nobody had any idea that in addition to being highly educated, she was also gifted with a photographic memory. Um, and as she's dusting Jefferson Davis's desk or picking up the cho children's toys from the nursery, she's sneaking peeks at his paper, she's overhearing conversations, and she's reporting all of this back to Elizabeth in a very elaborate scheme that, that got more elaborate as the war went on because more suspicion was coming down on them. To make all of this even more dangerous, uh, John Van Loo, Elizabeth's brother, was married to an ardent Confederate sympathizer, and they were all living together in the same house. And she would not have hesitated to report even her own husband and her own sister-in-law if she had suspected them of treasonous activity. And that was always on their minds, too, of course. So this uh, guy probably needs no introduction. Uh, one of my favorite characters of the Civil War, uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, sort of rock star of the Civil War. Uh, and I um, developed a sort of fascination with him because he was so weird. I once said that at a talk in Virginia, and I think I almost, they almost like <laughs> got very angry with me. I was like, it's so weird. Um, one of my favorite stories is about Stonewall Jackson in the spring of 1862, right before his famous Valley campaign, where he sort of goes on a tear and kicks some union butt. Um, he's in a hotel lobby in the Shenzhou Valley, and he's spotted by people there, and women just start rushing over to him. They crowd around him, they want to shake his hand, they want to tear at his buttons, they're grabbing at his hair, they're pulling on his coat. Stonewall takes a step back and he says, ladies, ladies, this is the very first time I've been surrounded by the enemy. <laughs> kind of a smooth line. Um, Belle Boyd, our spy in the Shenandoah Valley, our, our female id, 17-year-old, was obsessed with uh, Stonewall Jackson, probably needless to say. She told reporters that she wanted to, quote, occupy his tent and share his dangers. Um, which, if I were Stonewall Jackson, I think would have terrified me more than anything that the Union had in store for me. I would want to stay far away from Belle Boyd and my tent. Um, but she was obsessed with him, and they went on to have several interesting adventures, um, especially during his Valley campaign in the, in the spring of 1862. Um, and I should say, uh, one of my favorite stories about Stonewall Jackson is next. Um, a year later, 
uh, Stonewall Jackson was shot during the Battle of Chancellorsville, and he was struck in his left arm and shoulder, and uh, the field surgeons had to amputate his arm. And they were about to throw it in the pile of limbs, you know, there's always a pile of limbs in the corner, and his chaplain um, stopped them and said, no, no, Stonewall Jackson's arm deserves a proper Christian burial. Um, and so here, oh, oh, sorry, that slide is somehow missing. Anyway, Stonewall Jackson's um, arm got a proper Christian burial. It actually says Stonewall Jackson's arm um, in, it, in it with the dates. Of course, Stonewall Jackson himself died a few, a few days later. And uh, Bell Boyd, upon hearing the rumor that Stonewall Jackson had died, wired the governor of Virginia and said, please telegraph if General Jackson is dead. If so, save me a lock of his hair. Um, so that obsession continued even after his death. Uh, but now we are on to uh, General George McClellan, uh, another sort of fascinating guy uh, from the Civil War, and sort of the rock star of the North, at least for a time, he was Stonewall's counterpart. He, had, he was a complete egomaniac, which you might uh, tell from his sort of Napoleonic stance there. Um, he used to tell people that he could bend a quarter between his thumb and forefinger, and he could lift a 250-pound man over his head. Um, and he said that God himself had sent him to save the Union. You know, God, he was preordained by God, picked and sent to save the Union. And so he did what he was supposed to do. He whipped the army into shape after the disastrous uh, defeat at Bull Run. He made them start feeling like an army. He boosted their morale. He taught them what they needed to learn to fight battles. But the problem was that, that McClellan did not want to fight battles. He was terrified of war. He didn't like war. He always overestimated the number of Confederate troops he was facing and just spent his time badgering Lincoln for more troops. Um, when in reality, they always had about three times as many soldiers as the Confederate did on the field. Um, of course, his men loved him for this. They were, he wasn't sending them in to get killed. Um, Emma Edmonds, a.k.a. Private Frank Thompson, was one of his soldiers. Um, of course, she loved him as well, and she writes about him often in her own memoir. Um, but he clashed with Lincoln over this. If Lincoln was eager to avenge the loss at the Battle of Bull Run, he was eager to gain some ground with the Confederates. And, so, and uh, George McClellan would do nothing but just disparage him. And he was sending these great, hilarious letters home to his wife about Lincoln, whom he called, quote, nothing more than a well-meaning baboon. Um, and their relationship only became more acrimonious as the war went on. Oh, here's one of my, I guess her head's cut off, but you get the gist of the, the cartoon here. This is one of my favorite uh, cartoons of the Civil War, and I, I have many of them. Um, and just to give you some background and context for this, um, one of the Union's main strategies against the South was a blockade. They blocked off 3,500 miles of Confederate coastline, uh, basically starving the Confederates of weapons, clothing, food, um, things not only that uh, the Southern Army needed to fight, but things that the Southern civilians needed to live. And this blockade had immediate and dire uh, consequences on the South, and it really made people angry. Um, and, and in response to this great smuggling enterprise, an equally effective smuggling operation um, sprung up in its place. And this cartoon celebrates Southern women's ability to smuggle things across the line um, in order to thwart the blockade. And it depended on women's use of the crinoline, which in this picture, you can see it's this rigid cage-like structure that could reach a, a diameter of six feet. Six feet, if you could believe it. And there were all sorts of crazy statistics about what one might hide underneath a skirt, a rigid skirt that reached six feet. And just to give you one of these statistics, um, one woman managed to conceal inside her hoop skirt a roll of army cloth, several pairs of cavalry boots, a roll of crimson flannel, packages of gilt braid and sewing silk, cans of preserved meats, and a bag of coffee. That was the contraband tally for a single crossing. 
Um, and Belcoid was sort of the queen of the inland blockade, as they called it. And she would recruit other women to help her. And they specialized in smuggling weaponry. And um, just another statistic, uh, one morning in the fall of 1861, the 28th Pennsylvania awoke to discover that 200 sabers, 400 pistols, cavalry equipment for 200 men, and 1,400 muskets were all missing. Um, all thanks to Belle Boyd and her coterie of women who were smuggling these things under their skirts. Now, to me, this is a, a fascinating part of women's roles in the Civil War. Um, and how they were sort of uh, able to take uh, preconceived notions about gender and femininity and women's weakness and exploit them brilliantly. And they used their gender as both physical and psychological disguise. You know, physically they're hiding things up in their hair and tucking things under their skirts. And psychologically, anytime any of these women were accused of treasonous activity, the standard response was, how dare you? How dare you accuse me of such behavior? I am a lady. And, and you know, the, the men did not know what to do with that, at least not at first. It was sort of a, 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 an answer that they could not respond to in any way that, that they would thought was appropriate. Um, and so it sort of worked brilliantly, at, at least for a while. Now, this uh, is a doll named Lucy Ann. Um, today she lives in the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, but during the Civil War, she was one of the most popular dolls. Not because she was particularly cute, although I guess you could say she was a cute doll, but because her head was made of paper mache and it could be stuffed full of quinine. <laughs> quinine, of course, was a medicine that was um, essential to combating malaria, which affected both troops in great numbers. Um, but this was a very popular type of doll during the Civil War, especially in the South. And mothers would buy these dolls, stuff them full of quinine, and give them to their daughters and say, you know, we're going to just cross the lines and bring these, you know, and nobody, the, the sentries weren't going to search the, the girls, the little girls, or their dolls. Um, and it was kind of just their way of, of, of helping out. And this is a pretty widespread practice. So women who could, of course, not enlist and really had no voice in politics, this was a way that they would try to contribute. Um, and uh, it was a very popular thing for mothers to do. And, and I think that Rose um, O'Neill herself even brought her own daughter with her on missions and would tuck um, encrypted notes in her pantaloons in exchange for candy. You know, she was taught to go out and give the note and she'd get candy in return. And I think they truly believe in it, that enlisting their daughters in these sorts of activities was less dangerous than just lying back and letting the Union win and risk returning to a northern rule. So just the risk that they were willing to take. Now this was probably the favorite, my favorite piece of research that I found in the whole five years I researched this book. Um, and I'll tell you the story that, as it was told to me. I was at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, and the curator told me that one day a woman came in with this object, and she had a story. She said that her ancestor reportedly was a Confederate spy, and he would take little encrypted scrolls, you know, little, little bits of information, roll it up in a tiny scroll, put it in this contraption, and tuck the contraption in the place least likely to be searched. Now, the curator of the Museum of the Confederacy named this the anal acorn, um, now, I should say that this was not the right size. I, it's, not, it's not to scale. This is not the actual size of the anal acorn. Yeah, it's much, you know, and I don't know how many people um, use the anal acorn or how widespread this was, but I said, damn, that was not in any history book I ever read. I am putting it in my history book. Uh, and here's one more cartoon I really enjoyed, um, and it goes back to the blockade. Uh, by 1864, the blockade um, was having such dire consequences on the South uh, that people were literally starving. 
Um, there was, uh, well, and people couldn't go to school because they couldn't have the money to pay for the Confederate-approved textbooks. You know, every day Confederate-approved textbooks in the South. And they didn't have the money for them anymore. And just to give you an example, I think this is so funny. If one of the arithmetic questions in a Confederate-approved handbook, if one Confederate soldier kills 90 Yankees, how many Yankees can 10 Confederate soldiers kill? <laughs> so that was your, your math book in the South. Um, so prices kept rising, inflation was great. By 1864, one pound of bacon in the South was $20. That's today's money, $20 um, for a pound of bacon, which, sorry, in today's money is $302 for a pound of bacon, um, which was insane. Um, and so Southerners, understandably, were increasingly frustrated, starving, desperate, and they wrote, um, printed many cartoons that sort of vented their frustration. And here's a list of um, items that were sort of wishful thinking, things they wish they could be smuggling across the lines. Um, upper left-hand corner is a goblet made from a Yankee skull. <laughs> um, over, you have a, a jawbone, uh, a necklace made of Yankee teeth right below that. Um, you have furs made from Yankee beards over there. Um, and some other similarly gruesome items. Now, I, I should say that all of these were figments of the imagination. Nobody was really smuggling. Uh, these kinds of things across the line. But there is a bit of truth in it. Um, there were some counties in the South, particularly in Virginia, that were wearing um, jewelry made of Yankee bones was popular among some Southern women. Um, and so uh, this, this takes that idea to the extreme. Now here, if you can see this picture, um, Lincoln is on the, on the right here, and on the left is Alan Pinkerton, the famous detective. And I've always been fascinated by the Pinkertons, and I was so sort of excited to know that they had such a huge part in the Civil War. Um, shortly after the war began, Alan Pinkerton himself was recruited by General George McClellan to do some uh, reconnaissance work for the Union Army. Now, Pinkerton had two jobs. One of them was trying to figure out uh, information about the Confederate troops. And in this regard, he was just as terrible as McClellan. He was always overinflating the numbers. He and McClellan were feeding each other's paranoia. Terrible. The second part of uh, McClellan, uh, Pinkerton's job was ferreting out Confederate spies. And in this regard, uh, Pinkerton knew exactly what he was doing. He was very good at, at, at that sort of intelligence. And one of his very first missions was to figure out who was behind the loss at the, um, the, at the first battle of Bull Run. And the rumors were that a woman in Washington, D.C. named Rose Greenhow had a lot to do with it. So one night in 1861 in August, after the Battle of Bull Run, Pinkerton and two of his men head on over to Rose's uh, home on Lafayette Square, which, by the way, she always said was, quote, within rifle range of Lincoln's White House. Um, <laughs> and it was a torrential downpour this night. So it's kind of this comic scene in the book where two of the men have to climb up on Pinkerton's shoulders to just appear into Rose's parlor and see what they can say. Well, what do they see but Rose Greenhow sitting on a sofa um, with a man that Pinkerton's men recognize as a Union captain. And they take a closer look and realize that they're looking at maps and fortifications and sort of official looking paperwork that probably Rose O'Neill Greenhow should not be looking at. So they realize this is a traitor's Union captain. And then a few minutes later, Rose and this traitor's human captain begin passionately kissing. Now at this, Pinkerton is furious. Um, he declares Rose public enemy number one. Um, and he uh, starts a cat and mouse game with her that, that spans uh, throughout the book. And it's uh, sort of uh, nice cloak and dagger uh, scenes. Um, but he wrote of Rose. He, he sent a report into his union bosses and wrote, 
She has not used her almost irresistible seductive powers in vain among the officers of the army, not a few of whom she has robbed of patriotic hearts. Um, and this was interesting to me too. It was also a, a, a insight into women's roles in the Civil War. The idea that, you know, female, feminine loyalty was always assumed. You know, women were the victims of war. They weren't perpetrators of war. And suddenly it was becoming clear that women were not only capable of treasonous activity, but they were capable of executing it more deftly than men. Um, and this was something that, that the Union officials did not know how to deal with. They did not know how to grapple with this. And there's a scene where one of Lincoln's um, advisors actually said, and you can hear this sort of frustration in his voice, he says, what are we going to do with these fashionable female spies? <laughs> in this sort of plaintive voice. Um, and it's something that they have to really grapple with uh, throughout the war. And here's my final slide. Uh, this is a, uh, a man by the name of Benjamin Franklin Stringfellow. He had blonde hair and blue eyes. He weighed 94 pounds. According to one of his comrades, he had a waist as wispy as a woman's. Um, and he was a very important spy for Confederate General Jeb Stewart. And he had a rather unorthodox approach to spying himself. Um, Benjamin Franklin Stringfellow would find out exactly when and where the Union were holding their military balls. And on the evening of the military ball, Benjamin would put on his finest gown, and he would waltz on over the ball and then introduce himself as Sally Martin. Now, Sally Martin was the prettiest girl at the ball. Everybody wanted to ask Sally Martin to dance, and all the Union soldiers lined up to dance with Sally Martin. And with each new partner, Benjamin Stringfellow said, well, what is Lincoln thinking, and what is, what is uh, General McClellan doing, and, and what, are the, what is Grant doing next? Um, and gathered all this information and reported it back to General Jed Stewart. And I'd like to include him in the slideshow because it just goes to show that the women weren't the only ones cross-dressing during the war. Um, the, men, the men were on that action too. So that concludes the show. Uh, but if anybody has any questions or wants to tell me their own embarrassing ancestor stories that I can use later, I'm happy to hear them.
but they did, even with that loss, uh, they did have the most information uh, about them available. So it, it allows you to do the novelistic techniques of, of using dialogue and stuff like that. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not any of them got caught. Oh, you'll have to read the book. No. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good answer. Yeah, no, I mean, I will, I will say that there, the problems arise <laughs> for, the, for the women. Yeah, you know, um, it's, it's, they, 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 they see their share of trouble. Well, as you know, we uh, are focused on sin in the second city, yeah. uh, subject matter. Sure. Uh, I think we're all kind of curious. How did you come across the Everly Sisters? Oh, that's a good question, too. Um, actually, there, this, I wasn't even into history before that book, so I thank, I thank this for, for getting me into history to start with. But my grandmother, who is about to turn 99, um, always told me a story uh, that her mother and her mother's sister, so my great-grandmother and my great-grandmother's sister, emigrated from Slovenia in 1905. And um, one weekend, the sister went to Chicago and was never heard from again. And I was always intrigued and haunted by this bit of family lore, and I began just looking through the Chicago Tribune archives to see what was going on in 1905, what, what was happening. I didn't really expect to find anything about my missing ancestor, just was curious. And it turns out a lot of girls were going missing. Um, it was shortly after the World's Fair, I don't know if anybody has read Devil in the White City, I assume you have. So, so the, the trend of girls disappearing only escalated after that. And um, so I kept re reading, and I came upon a, a, another article um, that, that piqued my interest about Marshall Field Jr., the son of the department store mogul, um, got shot. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And, and I read further, and the rumor was that he was shot at a place called the Everly Club, which apparently was the most famous, lavish brothel in the world, where, which catered to actors, uh, literary giants like Theodore Dreiser, um, visiting royalty, Prince Henry of Prussia. Um, you know, the, the list went on. Oh, it's where the, you know, the, the trend of drinking champagne from the lady's slipper began. It's where this happened. It's where that happened. And I said, oh, my God. And then I, I looked into who owned this place, and it was two enigmatic sisters from Virginia um, who, who had quite a few skeletons in their own closet and mysteries surrounding them. And, of course, at that point, I forgot all about my own missing ancestor, <laughs> which sounds terrible, and I was much more interested in the Everleys and, and uh and their brothel, and sort of what was going on in America at the time. Uh, this, this progressive era reform. You know, when you think of the progressive era, you think of Ida Tarbell and the Standard Oil. You think of um, Upton Sinclair and, and the sort of the, the, the meat, the jungle. And, um, and you never hear, there was a nationwide effort where um, people were shutting down red light districts in a very systematic fashion and, and um, writing these titillating narratives. That I call them porn for Puritans. <laughs> to, to get people's interest, in, get people interested in this topic, but then um, to eventually trying to use that to, sh to shut it down. And you know, it wasn't anything I had ever read about. And um, I was interested in the context of, of these two women who thought, you know, what this, this business can be run in a respectable way, and and um, and uh, looking at that from both sides. And, and of course, the Everly Sisters were just fabulously fun women, so and brilliant, brilliant business women. Have any of you all read the book yet? No. Yes. Working on it. <laughs> so, so that's the Everly Sisters. Well, you, you've also written a book about the actress Gypsy. Oh, Gypsy Rosalie. Yeah. Yeah. How, what did you, how did you? Come well, again, her? I blame this on my grandmother. Um, <laughs> she sounds amazing. <laughs> she is. She's amazing. Um, 
her cousin saw gypsy root of labor form in 1935 in Chicago. And according to her cousin, um, what did he say? The exact quote was, she took 10 damn minutes to take off a single glove, and she was so damn good at it, I would have watched her for 10 more. And I thought, who could make the act of re removing a glove so compelling that someone would be want to watch this for 10 minutes, to, or for 20 minutes? Who, who could make it that interesting that you would sit there and watch somebody take off a glove for 20 minutes? So I was intrigued by her from that. And then I started doing a little bit of research, and I found a telegram, found a telegram from Eleanor Roosevelt to G Gypsy Rose Lee um, that said, may your bare ass always be shining. <laughs> and I thought, if someone can inspire Eleanor Roosevelt to write that, that telegram, I thought, this, this lady, and, and, and then, you know, I'm sure people have probably seen the movie or the play. Her life is so much more complex and darker. That book is a dark, it's a dark look at um, sort of what the, the underbelly of the American dream, um, much darker than what the, the Broadway play or the movie, and much more interesting in, in my view. And um, the way that she sort of spanned, it's not so much a biography in my view, but like sort of microcosm of 20th century America. I mean, she started performing in vaudeville, and her last performance was for Vietnam soldiers. Wow. So sort of the way she was sort of able to adapt and remain relevant um, was, was pretty amazing and, and have this incredibly rich and dark and deep life that nobody really knew about. Murder, <laughs> her mother murdered people, yeah, so. Do you, uh, you're kind of in a room with researchers. Yeah. Uh, do you have a, a specific uh, method of research? Do you go to just libraries? Do you just use primary sources? How do you uh, get enough material oh, to God. produce? I try to get everything you can get your hands on, you know? Um, and, and as much as you can have the experience, I think I told you, uh, my next book is actually, takes place, a little, takes place a little bit in Kentucky, if anybody's familiar with the bootlegger George Remus. Um, who was reportedly the inspiration for Jay Gatsby. Uh, he and Fitzgerald, according to legend, crossed paths, and Fitzgerald found him fascinating, who would hand out cars at parties and things like that. Um, but anyway, I, I plan to, to go to the scene of one of his crimes coming up, but um, I always like to, if there's some sort of reenactment or something that could put me in the moment of a, of a story that happened 100 years ago, it's always really thrilling in a way. And, and for this book, I used to go to Civil War reenactments all the time. Um, and I went to the 150th reenactment of the first Battle of Bull Run. Now, I have to say, I really admire the reenactors. You know, they, they do their own research. It's meticulous detailing down to the buttons they would have worn, the facial hair that's grown, you know, the, the sort of grooming of facial hair over years to get it quite like Burnside and the handlebar mustache. Like, it's very, very deliberate and, and impressive. Um, but of course, it's you know, 21st century, and anachronisms can't help but seep in. So I'm sitting there. They, they thoughtfully arranged bleachers for you to watch the war now. Um, <laughs> I guess the picnickers, the people back then, could use some bleachers. Um, but I'm sitting there, and there was a man behind me with like his 10-year-old son. And <laughs> all I heard him say was, look, son, there's Stonewall Jackson by the power lines. <laughs> it kind of like brought out of the moment, but you know, and this is after, after the war, they're all drinking their Starbucks. <laughs> um, but but it's, it was it was great, and and uh, you know, you try to do that as often as you can. But but just um, research um, anytime. Primary source, primary source materials are of course the the best things ever. It's the only thing that allows you to get into people's heads and know their thoughts and, and use those and um, try to make the the book read like a story. You know, I, I always want history to read like 
I'm sure it happened dramatically, and it should be dramatic on the page. Um, so that's that's my sort of goal with that. Um, my I just spent not too long ago a week at uh, Yale Law Library, xeroxing page by page, eight thousand pages of a murder trial transcript for my for my next book, and I sort of loved every minute. It was just like you know, just doing the same thing literally for not. Nine hours a day, I just did this, but I was just like caught glimpses of dialogue and stuff. And I was like, I can't wait to put that in. I can't wait to put this in. So anyway, okay, now I have like a research. <laughs> sorry, I've research geeked out there for a minute, but I guess you all you all understand. So, so during your research, have you found other people that you think would make a good book? Or, um... Yeah, you know what I. It's funny, you always come across interesting characters, but it always boils down to, is there the primary resource for them? Is there primary source material? And if there's not, they could be the most interesting story in the world, but you're not gonna write a good nonfiction book about them. You might write a great novel based on them, but you're not gonna write a good nonfiction book. So that's the hard thing about nonfiction. There's so many good characters and stories, but it's like, things are disappear, you know, things disappear, things are destroyed, things get lost, and, and um, recreating it so much, um, so many centuries or years later, it's, it's difficult. And every time I hear that the National Archives is like maybe throwing stuff out, I like have a conniption. I don't know if that's true. Is that a nasty rumor? Is that actually true that the National Archives throws things out? Because I will, I will start a formal protest. Given, 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 the, given the atmosphere, in Washington, I wouldn't be surprised. I know. Do you have any advice for any of the? If there are writers in the audience, you know. I think all of us dream of writing a book, and uh, of course, being a librarian, we love books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I should thank you all for what you do. I mean, you guys are sort of the last bastion of humanity in, <laughs> in, in ways, and and, um, and just connecting people to story and is, is a really important thing. So, thank you for that. Um, and let me say, I mean, if anybody had specific questions about it, I, um, I mean, I guess the most important thing is to find people who are also writers, find people who are better than you are, who can read your stuff and tell you, help you get better. Um, you said you spend five years researching stuff, how long does it take to actually write? Well, I, I write as I research, oh, okay. because if I didn't do that, um, I would spend, I'd literally still be researching this book and not, a, and use it as an excuse. I'm not, I'm not done yet, I'm not done yet. No, I, well, I, I did do that somewhat. I, I would get on a kick with somebody and I'd keep going, and then other times I would try to write them but at the end, I had you know this pile of paper, and I have like a 600 square foot apartment in New York City. And I, at some point, I just put all the papers on the floor and was like trying to like make connections that you can see sometimes physically that you can't see on a, a little screen. And um, I was talking earlier. I have a parrot. My parrot was like moving papers around. So if there are any weird passages, it's probably my parrot's fault. Um, no, but but uh, but it's. Um, it varies, it varies. I think the most helpful thing in terms of organization is to write an outline. Um, I know a lot of novelists probably can't do it. I don't think any nonfiction writer should go without an outline because um, if you do a day-by-day -day outline, that's where you see connections too. It's like so-and-so's doing this, oh, and over here somebody's doing this. And maybe there's a connection, and somebody's meeting somebody here, and they're meeting the same. So it's kind of like if you just have a day-to-day -day outline of everything that happens, it's, it's gonna be like your sort of, your playbook. Um, and, and it almost writes itself from that point. Oh, not really, but <laughs> it makes it a lot easier. One, one of the comments that I've heard about uh, Simmons Second City is that 
it's nonfiction, but it reads like a novel. Oh, well, thanks. I and, take that as a compliment. And I think that's a real compliment. Yeah, I try. Because, you know, some people read historical fiction, right. I suppose. But I'm curious as to whether you have any interest in writing fiction at all. I do. I, I would like to try. I really admire novelists because... Because I, I think you have the ability to Thank you. No, I appreciate that. If, if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, I, I would like to. And I, I, I was saying I, I admire novelists because... Um, like the thing about about fiction is, I don't know if it's liberating to have that much freedom or if it's paralyzing, you know? Right, because you have all the control. Yeah, you and create the perfect the right. And, and it's like when I have limitations in nonfiction, it's not my fault, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have limitations in fiction, it's all your fault. Just make that bad decision. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. About it's like I, I can always blame things in nonfiction on the fact that oh my 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 stupid character didn't didn't talk about this. I just have to. I, I can't really elaborate because that's all I have. Um, but in fiction, you don't have that excuse. So, I mean, there are there are a couple of things I would love to try at some point. I'm, I'm right now under a two book deal to write nonfiction, so I'll maybe I'll think about it down the line. But and um, but that's but it is it's something I, I would like to try, and I, I I think fiction is really hard. Any other questions? Do you really like the Chicago area? I do. I love Chicago. I, I hadn't been to Chicago before I started researching in the Second City. And, uh, sort of fell in love with the, fell in love with the place. Although people ask the weirdest questions there. <laughs> um, speaking of like, you know, wanting to do research that puts you in the moment, I was talking about that at another, uh, at an event once for Sim in the Second City, um, and basically saying I had gone to the site of where the Everly Club was, and now it's a, it's actually quite an interesting structure housing project. Um, but the person was like, so did you do any like, hands-on research into prostitution. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, that would have only worked if I'm if I was like 110 years old, like and was at you know at the time writing about my memories. And you know, if I'm 110 years old, I don't think <laughs> I don't think so. Um, that would be quite frightening. Uh, yeah, so just creepy things like, so how much prostitution do you know? Um, but anyway, no, Chicago was great. They're they're very into their own history. Um, which I found refreshing. They're, they want to know all of uh, all about the history that that, uh, that that sort of forgotten. And I'll tell you about my favorite archive. There it's called um, the Collection of Chicago Anna. It was at the uh, University of Illinois Chicago. And if if you read the book, um, you're reading the book now, right? Uh, you, uh, most of the ma uh, the lesser madams, the madams in the lower class brothels, kept a whipper on staff to discipline the girls if they stepped out of line, they called them whippers. Um, and Madame Dickshaw, who's one of my favorite characters, was the Everly's big rival. Um, she went after them, she was jealous of them, she hated them, she tried to destroy them. She kept a whipper on staff. The Everly's, of course, did not. They were much too dignified and to have a whipper on staff. But Madame Dickshaw had a whipper on staff. Her whipper was named Lil the Whipper. Now, in the collection of Chicago Lana at the University of Illinois Chicago, there's a Dick Shaw family album, which is the craziest family album you ever wow. <laughs> could imagine. The Dick Shaw family album. And there's a picture of Will the Whipper, her business card. They had like, you know, calling cards at the time. She had a business card, a calling card that said Will the Whipper with her picture. And now I went to 16 years of Catholic school, which probably explains a lot about my <laughs> writing about prostitutes and strippers. Um, but <laughs> 
she had this big bun on her hair. She looked like a nun. Like she looked like, like a prim proper nun. She was buttoned up and had this big thing and cornered glasses. And it said, Lil the Whipper beat 1,000 harlots bloody. <laughs> so that was like on her calling card. And that was a point of pride that she had beaten 1,000 harlots bloody. Um, and uh, I thought that was quite fascinating. I actually took a picture of it. It's on my phone somewhere. But, um, but yeah, so the fact that those things still exist um, the Everly Club put out in 1911, which was the, one of the results, uh, causes of their demise, uh, their advertising brochure, leather-bound, 50 pages, gorgeously done, that was sent out all over the country to, to select clients. They have a couple of those, which are like priceless, and the, you know, these original um, advertising brochures, and, and other things that are just really, really kind of amazing. Um, so, so yeah, so Chicago, so Chicago I, I appreciate that Chicago really sort of loves itself, <laughs> you know, it's nice to have a city, coming from Philadelphia, which always puts, Philadelphia always beats itself up, nobody else can beat up Philadelphia, but Philadelphia can beat itself up, Chicago would never beat itself up. Did you uh, ever run across Beulah Sharon Bannon? Oh, come, who? Beulah Sharon Bannon. No, I've not. The, the movie Chicago. Oh, yes, yeah, I mean, I've heard of that, I know that story, she somebody actually born, did a non-fiction. born and died. Oh, yeah. I, well, it didn't die here, but it's buried. Oh, I didn't know that. Out in the county. Oh, interesting. And then we had a fellow that was a professor in Chicago that came in and wrote a book about it. Oh, interesting. Charles Cosgrove. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And he got interested because of the music that she played when she, her husband was killed. Oh. It was a, a jazz piece. Interesting. She was one of the women in Chicago? Yeah. The one Renee Zellweger, the okay. blonde. The blonde. Roxy. She was the prettiest, the woman too pretty that night. Okay. Yeah. There was a, there was, I'm wondering if they were thinking about the same book, because I, I read a book, I thought a woman wrote it though. Maybe it was Cosworth. Maybe not. Well, Do you remember the name of his book? No, he was still looking for publisher. He would send us, oh. he would send us chapters. Yeah, and we, we would read, read them. them. Oh, okay. Was Sheila would like edit them. I would, oh. you know, I would make sure that historically Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But he interviewed well, family members that were here. Okay. Very cool. There's a good subject. Yeah, there's no no end of the good stories coming out of Chicago. <laughs> and then back to the other, Jefferson Davis homes here in Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you in the mood to sign some books? Yeah, of course. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.